0: Hello from Cyberry and Delinea, and welcome to the show. If you've been enjoying the Cyberry podcast or 401 Access Denied, then make sure to like, follow, and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or review on your platform of choice or emailing us at podcastsiberry.it. From all of us at Cyberry and Delinea, thank you and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the 401 Access Denied podcast. I'm the host for today's episode, Joe Carson, Chief Security Scientist and Advisory CISO at Delinea. and I'm really excited about today's podcast. It's uh, as always. It's so great to have amazing guests on the show, and I'm joined by no other than the awesome industry rock star Rick Ferguson. So over to Rick to to if you can give us a bit of introduction about yourself, and also you know feel free to give us uh, some background into some of your hobbies and. Uh, probably why he referred to you as a rock
1: sure. star. <laughs> uh it's funny. Uh we we none of you know but we were just talking off <laughs> camera of course before we started. Uh and being described as a rock star. <laughs> I was, we were talking about age and gray hair and this is the first mm-hmm. podcast I'm doing with my glasses on. I've decided to accept reality and age. Um so yeah, being described as a rock star at 52 I'll I'll, I'll take it. Thank you very much for that. Um mm-hmm uh so yeah i mean as a result i suppose of my advancing years that means i've been um around and in the industry for a long time i mean my career per se started back in 94 so Mm -hmm. that's when tcpip was still an option um not a default um and i i spent over a decade in technical support Mm -hmm. so my, my day job was basically um people would phone me up with broken stuff and I had to work out why it was broken, what I had to do to get it fixed mm-hmm. again, and also talk people down off the ledge who were extremely angry about the fact mm-hmm. that it had broken at the worst possible time for them. But it <laughs> was, you know, we we were dealing with TCP IP, we were dealing with mm-hmm. IPX, SPX, we were dealing with token ring. Um, I was getting people to to grab network traces and having to kind mm-hmm. of re, um, uh, put those back together and, and work out why something wasn't working. And more often than not, actually back then, it's probably still the case now. People who are working in support today will, will probably sympathize. It's because somebody hadn't engineered according to RFC. And I'm sure that still happens all the time today, but that was that was a really common thing. So, so yeah, I spent like a decade doing that. Um, and there comes a point in a tech support career when you're too valuable for people to let you go because you're the person that's been there the longest. You're the person that everyone else goes to for quick answers to save them going through troubleshooting. uh, And you've encountered most problems. So you hit this kind of glass ceiling where Mm -hmm. you're too valuable in the support role to actually be able to to bust your way out of it into something more challenging after you've been there that long. So I had to Mm -hmm. quit employer and shift a bit. And I moved into security and privacy architecture design. So I was actually, Mm. instead of having to fix something that had gone wrong, I could try to design things that were um, less inclined to go Mm. wrong, let's say. Um, And that was for a company that doesn't exist anymore called EDS. They were acquired by HP. Ah, I remember EDS. Yeah. Yeah. So they were (laughs) a systems integrator uh, and I was working on um, sort of government and law enforcement type projects, mostly around identity and access management, and specifically Mm -hmm. around intrusion prevention at the time. And then I spent almost 15 years at Trend Micro. um, And if you don't already know, um, I started uh, a new role with a new employer um, in August of this year. So that's been a big change for me. After 15 years in one company, uh, I'm now working for for Forescout as the vice president of security intelligence. um, And it's allowing me to well I'm going to do a lot of the same kind of things that you're used to me doing, so I'm here to to talk about stuff and engage and do things like this mm-hmm. podcast and create research and compelling content um, and bring the world of of security to life and to light. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also i'm I'm having much more of an influence on where Four Scout's going, what the strategic direction is, um, and how we can as an organization think of new ways to approach old problems, because one of, I think one of the biggest things in cybersecurity, one of the biggest causes of issues for practitioners, but also for vendors, is complacency. People who look at a problem and look at a way of doing things to say, well, this is the way that we've always done it we're not going to deviate from that because we're comfortable with doing it this way. The fact is that use cases change, technologies change, society changes the way that your users and your developers and your board members and your investors see what you're doing or approach what they're doing changes over time. So your approach to solving those problems needs to evolve too. And that to achieve that, you need that kind of, you've got to be able to stand back Mm -hmm. from the issue at hand And dispassionately look at it and say, okay, I'm going to unlearn the ways that I was doing things Mm -hmm. before. I'm going to approach this problem with all of my knowledge and experience, but with none of my preconceptions and think, is there a new and different way to, to, to approach this? And, and for me, switching employers after such a long time at one and an even longer time in the industry, it's more than 25 years now, um, Mm -hmm. It's really refreshing to be able to give myself that perspective.
0: Yeah, and I have a question. So for 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 you, I mean, I think changing roles after so long is is something. It's you know is is a, in, a strange thing to be doing sometimes. And one of the things that I've always regretted over the time, and I think most of the audience, I would love them to take a lesson from this, is taking some time in between uh, roles. Um, you know, so my roles, I've always you know, the day you finish, you're starting the next week for a new role. Um, And I always regret not taking some time, personal time, in between changing companies. Is there something you've taken the opportunity to do yourself, to to take a little bit of time for yourself and family?
1: Yeah, I was obligated to do it, which is cool. I probably wouldn't have done because, like I said, it was 15 years ago when I started a trend, and Mm -hmm. I was a very different person at a very different point in my career. You know, I was not in a position to say, you know what, I'm not going to work for three months. I mean, who is, Mm -hmm. right? Very few people are like... (laughs) The cool thing about, I'm I'm located in Warsaw in Poland. Mm -hmm. Um, Employment law here is such that after you've been, I forget how many, but I think three, five years at one employer, then Mm -hmm. you must have three months notice. Um, But obviously, you know, Trend Micro didn't want me around with access to information and systems for all of that three months, and that's the right thing to do. Um, So that meant that Mm -hmm. for a part of that, um, I was effectively on, on garden leave, garden um, leave. and that meant I could focus on other stuff. So that's been great. I can't say that I, I focused on one particular thing and used my time in order to be able <laughs> to learn to speak Punjabi. I don't know. Right. I, I did what I wanted to do at the time, which changed on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Some of it was, was music related. I don't know if the focus mm-hmm. will tell you what's behind me, yeah. um, uh, some of it was family related. We're in the middle of building Mm -hmm. a house as well. So some of it was dedicated to that, but yes, it's been great to, to have that time, Mm -hmm. um, to lose focus on, on an employer, any employer, Mm uh, and just take some time to, you know, take stock and reassess.
0: Absolutely. For me, I, it's, it's always something that I've looked back in, in my career and the times, I mean, I've, I've been at companies for quite a long time as well, but in those moments where I've changed roles, I wish I took the month or three months just to just to kind of recuperate the energy and get the excitement going. So when you do start, um, you're starting fresh. You're starting with the energy that you need to.
1: And I think most yeah, of the industry kind of raring care. to go. It's like, okay, I've been I've been mm-hmm. out of the game for a while now, yeah. and I'm I'm you know I'm ready. Give me a challenge. Take let and me the, take. And you get on. rested.
0: And you get rested. Yeah. and Also get the balance back as well because it's a thing. It's important to do a proper reset. Yeah. Um, during that time as well. Um, so what? What? As you've changed roles, what? What's? What do you see currently? Because a lot's happened in the last couple of years. I think for the first part of my career, security kind of stayed stagnant. It was evolving, but I think in the last couple of years, it's really accelerated and evolved. Where I think one of the great, uh, you know, with uh, Miko uh, stating recently, I think one of his tweets was that we're no longer securing computer systems uh were our computers what we're doing is we're we're, we're securing society um, yeah. i think that was a powerful kind of message and i think it was a realization that you know that how security has changed even in the last few years what what do you see the current state of cybersecurity today and what do you think is kind of you know what where's the places we need to make changes to in order to really uh, catch up and get back on track you
1: know it's interesting I, I, another thing that miko said uh hmm. A few years before the one that you just quoted right. um and, it, and it's it that's been a, a, a thought process evolution of his that it's been nice to watch mm-hmm. uh, is that every company is a software company that absolutely that trend has continued it doesn't matter really what you do you're a software company somewhere along the way um and that has led to the the point where now cybersecurity is securing society arguably to a greater or lesser extent extent it always has been securing society mm-hmm. But only that part of society which is reliant on digital technology uh, mm-hmm. to offer its goods, services, whatever it might be, and the, the the society that that is that that forms that group has been growing until it's become all encompassing. So that's kind of why that's come true.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, what I was saying just yesterday, I think it was in a conversation, is what what strikes me as being that the, one of the, the really important things that we have to focus on right now is how we as security practitioners and enterprises how we learn our lessons Mm
0: -hmm.
1: because it's definitely true to say at the moment and i'm thinking specifically about ransomware but i don't think Mm -hmm. this applies only to ransomware Mm -hmm. is that we see the same attack and the same methodology being successful against different victims over and over again so it, the lessons that we're learning we're learning in silos of individual organizations hopefully if you get hit badly by ransomware you're going to learn a whole load of lessons from that not just how do i respond to the incident and how do i deal with a with a ransom demand and how yeah. do i successfully back up my data so that i don't have to you know pay the ransom but also you learn how do i successfully encrypt my data so that it can't be leaked because mm. that's become a standard part of a ransomware attack hopefully you learn how do i architect and better segment networks so mm-hmm. that lateral movement becomes less possible within that environment many many lessons can be learned from those but we learn them right now in silos of individual organizations so if you've been here you learn your lessons and hopefully it doesn't happen to you again But then someone else, even in the same industry vertical as you, because we know that ransomware um, crime groups Mm. focus on industry verticals, you know, they'll focus on government, they'll focus on healthcare, for example, education. Um, That knowledge is not, and those best practices are not effectively being shared. Either they're not effectively being shared across industry verticals, or even just across Mm -hmm. potential victim populations in general, or they're not being successfully received. I don't know. You know who, who, where the blame squarely lies, and I'm sure it's, mm-hmm. you know, six or one a half dozen is the other. My mum would say, um, but there is definitely a problem in how we learn from our experiences, good or bad. To be honest, uh, and and if we could go some way towards addressing that short term, um, that would be extremely helpful. The other thing, though, that I think we don't do very well in security mm-hmm. is that we don't come out of firefighting mode very often. We're so focused on. Right fixing the problems of today. And by necessity, we're in response mode a lot of the time. You know, you've know, got to look at the statistics around security operations mm-hmm. center and alert fatigue and, and burnout and all of the other yeah. stats. We're, we're stuck in response mode because we have a hell of a lot to respond to. We're not able to make the space to step back and get that broader view of not just, where is my employer going? And what's the five-year plan for my employer? But where is my industry going? Mm-hmm. And what are the technologies that are pertinent to my industry that are emerging right now? What's the adoption plan within my organization? And therefore, what's the what are the security implications of that adoption? And how do I build a longer-term plan? But also, there are societal uh, developments that mm-hmm. have implications. There are governmental and legislative developments that have implications. And we need to be able to create the space within our profession where CIOs, CISOs are have time built into their calendars that is forward-looking time, not firefighting time.
0: Absolutely. So it's about creating a fine balance. And you you make a a very important point. I think it's one of the things that is that structural-wise and organizational-wise, many organizations still have security into the IT kind of structure and infrastructure departmental side of things. And for me, you know, it's going is that we're, we should start to see a much more convergence of cybersecurity evolving more into a business uh, uh, operational uh, kind of approach. We're focusing more on the business risk and business resiliency um, rather than you know looking at to an IT technology problem. where something that actually should be across all departments of the organization. We really need to bring down some of those silos, uh, departmental wise, and make sure that cybersecurity gets embedded. I think you know, one of the great things I think the book um, that Adrian and Jessica and Kieran did a few years ago, the ABCs of cybersecurity, which is all about awareness, behavior, and culture. And I really think that, to your point, um, that we definitely need one is better communication, better visibility, and better longer-term thinking. Uh, Because that brings up another uh, area that um, we, I, I listened to a talk that you did a while back, which I think that many organizations who are in that firefighting mode, what they end up doing is they incur lots of technical debt. Yeah, Because in the firefighting mode, you're only looking at what's right in front of you and you end up choosing a tool that does one thing that solves that one problem. And if you're not thinking more strategically or thinking longer term of where you need to be next year or where you need to be in two years, that technical debt can, can, can become a problem for you being able to actually get budget and get resources that you need to then transform or move from those, you know, Point solutions or yeah. non-integrated solutions to a much more strategic approach. How big is the problem with technical debt today, um, as a result of this? So technical debt
1: is an interesting one. It's a term that originally comes out of agile development, and it was and it's the meaning of it has kind of morphed over time. In in its original sense, it was saying that you know, you start a new project. Um, you really don't know very much about the tools that you're using, the thing that you're trying to build because the thing doesn't exist. So you're learning as you go. And as you Mm -hmm. progress, you use that and you incur technical debt as you go along, as you're doing this development process, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you use the knowledge that you gain through having gone through that process to go back and repay that debt by revisiting Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. fixing the stuff that you got wrong earlier in the process. That was kind of the original definition of technical debt. Um, that was termed, and it, it's. Some argue that it's overused now. I would argue probably that it's not mm. used enough because if it were overused, it would be top of mind for people. People would be thinking about it when they make decisions. But yes. clearly, they're not. In the way that you described, it it's more more now than just software coding development of a product. It's mm. planning and implementation of a, a product or a service or an architecture, mm. um, you know, whatever it might be. And if you're obliged to, it, basically, it's it's taking decisions quickly in order to get something out the door to meet a deadline. That's how yeah. you incur technical debt now. And whether that's you know the, the the product team at your organization has decided that this new service must be released on this date, come hell or high water, then all the teams and security will only be one of those responsible for making that happen. Will mm-hmm. pull out all the stops to get to that uh, that drop dead date. And that will mean that they will make short term decisions. Short term decision making mm-hmm. is the root of technical debt. Um, if you're not in a position where you can accurately build a register of all of those product and implementation and coding decisions that are made as you go through that process of building a service or a product or whatever it may be, then It's effectively like losing track of all your loans and never knowing when your repayments are due or what interest is being charged on those because that's the thing with technical debt. Over time, you do build up interest on the debt that you've accrued through your decision-making process. So if you're not in a position to be able to pay back that technical debt, there will come a time when it will come back to bite you because of all the interest that's accrued on the decisions that you made. Suddenly, you find that... Mm -hmm one of the underlying authentication mechanisms for the thing that you built is only capable of handling, I don't know, an eight-character password or something. Mm-hmm. And then every other thing that that system does is tainted by the fact that the authentication is architecturally weak underlying that. Right. But because you've built this complex interconnected system on top of that, your, your now current ability mm-hmm. to, uh, to repay that technical debt is extremely low because of the interconnected nature of of
0: any change you have to make i love that metaphor (laughs) it's like having hundreds of credit cards and you can only use that credit card for shopping at one thing (laughs) or buying one good and you lose track of the interest rates and all of those that's a fantastic you know comparison to how how you can really see how how Impactful technical debt can be to an organization if you start losing visibility and losing accountability of all of those. It, yeah, you uh,
1: you end up with um, you know governance issues yep. because you've you know lost the audit trail or even the you know the decision mm-hmm. trail. You end up with um, really poor strategic alignment within an organization because people are mm-hmm. making spur not spur of the moment but short term decisions yes. to fix. Um, Issues And then what you end up with at the end of that, actually probably one of the greatest interest on technical debt things, is you end up having having to neglect or delay any kind of modernization on the thing that you've built because it becomes massively complex uh, Mm -hmm. and incredibly difficult to change stuff because it's all... Interrelated,
0: and it could slow down innovation for business as well. Because all, all of that, when organizations looking to you know new business opportunities or new services or new technology, that really helps accelerate. Yeah. Sometimes, it's like we, we can't go there because it it's not compatible with this, or we would have to do this major upgrade or digital transformation in order to be able to achieve that. So it also can be an impact of not just about you know incurring costs from a security perspective and and stopping you from innovating to to newer technologies. But also from a business impact as well, it can actually slow yeah. the business down. Um, yeah, and it's,
1: it's it's inherent complexity, isn't it? If if mm-hmm. if your decision making it has to be rapid fire because of the you know you're being driven in that direction by the way the project is evolving mm-hmm. or uh, the implementation or whatever it may be, um, then kind of like you said when we started this topic is you're you're deploying point solutions to resolve a problem so you can move on to the next challenge. right? I've I've, I've ticked that box. I've got a solution in place that offers me that functionality. What's the next problem? Uh, And you end up with this hugely complex but massively interconnected beast, which is very difficult then to do anything with, whether that's governance, testing, Mm -hmm. or or modernization.
0: Quick question in in this, you might there's a lot of different deployment models uh, from, you know, traditional on-premise to, you know, licensing. And how d- does cloud somewhat kind of reduce the impact of technical debt by making it a little bit more portable or not, or easier to change or easier to deploy? Um, I, it's a good question. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I suppose it
1: depends on the choices you make when it comes to your your cloud vendor, if it's something you're building yourself in the cloud and, and you have had the luxury of being able to build from scratch, then absolutely, it, mm-hmm. it, definitely, it definitely allows you greater portability. Uh, it definitely allows you um, things like containerization to segment things away along with their yeah. dependencies and you know uh, exactly what's where, hopefully, if you're managing mm-hmm. it uh, correctly. When it comes to services from a third party, then of course you need to do that due diligence up front. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to request uh, access and knowledge to, uh, to assure yourself that that is the case. One of the worst things that could happen is that you you know you sign up with a particular cl- cloud provider for a service, mm-hmm. and then you find that they're using a proprietary data format. So you're kind of locked into that platform um, and you're totally unable to, uh, to move to another. You know, one of the great possible answers to that kind of question is uh, the question of encryption, which is another technology, you know, way, way back early in my career, I was working for PGP. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, encryption was a big part. It was encryption and VPNs yeah. and yeah. actually firewalls too, gauntlet firewall all the way back then. <laughs> um, encryption is still massively under-deployed, mm-hmm. um, particularly um, searchable symmetric encryption, homomorphic encryption, all of those much newer advances in the field of encryption. But those sorts of technologies should allow you ultimate portability. If you can drop your encrypted data mm-hmm. into a cloud service, and it never has to be decrypted because you're using it in its encrypted form, searchable, symmetric, or homomorphic, or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, any cloud platform that allows you to drop that data in means that you can pull that data out because it's still your data mm-hmm. in your encrypted format, and you can go take it somewhere else at any point. Um, so, cloud definitely should improve uh, governance, portability, uh, and at least hide away the complexity from the customer and make it somebody else's problem. That's Absolutely. That's the the crux of, of, a, of a platform as a service or a software as a service mm-hmm. offering is that someone else has to take care of the detail. Um, yeah. But it's a question of how that someone else, the complexity doesn't go away it just becomes someone else's problem it
0: becomes another 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 uh, area of uh, of physical responsibility yeah. um to your point it brings up for kind of some of the lessons i learned here in estonia was that um, i remember going into the government you know more than 10 years ago we were talking about software defined networks that's the way to go and the estonian government went no, that's yesterday. We were already doing service-defined networks. And I was like, oh, what's that? <laughs> and they yeah. basically went through. And they, uh, that's when I learned about a new approach was that it's not about the software. It's about how the software basically creates a service together. It's about the interoperability. It's about those connectivities, the APIs. It's about the data flow. And ultimately, to the end, it's about the service that you're offering that is basically a collaboration of all of those technologies together. And for me, that was kind of enlightening. And also got, you know, that's where you start thinking about the bigger picture to your point, as you mentioned earlier, but stepping back and seeing that bigger picture. But how does everything work together? What's the role? What, you know, do we have any areas of potential fault, you know, failures or single points yeah. of failure that could, that could was, impact yeah, my, it?
1: One of my last pieces of work at, at Trend Micro was Project 2030. And that's kind of exactly the point of doing that kind of project is very rarely in our industry, do you get a chance to look at something like a 10 year, time frame to say, mm-hmm. what are the potential technological, societal, legislative, governmental um, changes? Um, mm-hmm. uh, what are the implications in terms of behavior and technology of those changes? And what are the implications of that for cybersecurity stakeholders? Mm-hmm. If these things come true, and and mm-hmm. in all of their interrelated glory, what are the consequences of that? What should we as cybersecurity stakeholders be bearing in mind? And how do we get to build a more nuanced plan for that 10-year timeline? 10 years is, is a, and it, I'm sure you know, and probably everybody listening knows, 10 years is an eternity in technology. It's probably twice mm-hmm. as long as that in cybersecurity.
0: Absolutely. And there's one, another thing is kind of, one of the things you pointed earlier um, and it brought to mind is about uh, how, how we communicate cybersecurity. I think that's one of the things I've lessons I've learned in recent years that we really need to. And, and again, I'm, I'm watching um, as we're we're doing this. You know, a lot of people are going to to conferences, and a lot of the vendors are in the expo halls doing their messages. And for me, I think you know every time I go to the expo halls, it's a bit of a you know, it's all about fear, it's about scaring, it's about floods, yeah, and it's still that, and it frustrates me because I always think about. Um, how do we make it positive? How do we start communicating it much more of how does security help the business? How does it help employees be successful? And ultimately when we're making those decisions, going back to, if you're thinking strategic is about how is one of my, what I'm putting in place today, what technology am I replacing or what process am I placing? Um, And is it better? Is the, is, is the security implementation of this better than the employees experience with the older solution is it yeah, and for me, a lot of it's
1: about point? visibility and risk. It's mm-hmm. about having conversations that are more visibility focused and risk focused. How do I mm-hmm. gain ultimate visibility over everything that I'm responsible for? Because one of the the perennial problems um, for security is that you can't mm-hmm. secure what you can't see, uh, and very yeah. often our visibility within any, within any organization is incredibly constrained usually to traditional platforms that we're used to dealing with you know whether that's mm-hmm. um, Linux Windows Mac OS those kinds of things uh, and we are increasingly particularly with you know rapid adoption of 5g we're increasingly moving to an enterprise environment that is way beyond those endpoints you know <laughs> you think about the kind of stuff that you might find in a medical environment you think about the kind of stuff that you might find in an industrial environment or just in a standard office environment to to manage lighting and and, um, air conditioning and temperature and ventilation, all those kinds of things. They're all connected to the network too. They all represent potential points of entry. Mm -hmm. So definitely we need to move the conversation onto one that's much more about visibility. And that doesn't have to be about fear, uncertainty, and doubt. That's just about how do I, first of all, accept that I don't have it right now and what steps Mm -hmm. do I need to take uh, in order to uncover and discover all of those things that I'm currently blind to. And then associated with that conversation about visibility, we need to then frame the the actions to be taken in terms of risk, because risk in itself isn't a bad thing. And you get to make your own decisions about risk, one of which, and it's perfectly valid, is to accept risk. As long as you know about it, it might be the exactly the right business decision to, business decision to make to say, okay, I'm aware of that risk now. And it's in my risk register and I accept that risk. Or you might say, I'm gonna mitigate that risk and here's my strategy Mm -hmm. to do that. Or you say, I'm gonna offset that risk and get some insurance or whatever it is and have somebody else take on the the financial um, and responsibility for that risk because I pay them some money. But you have those choices to make. None of those are about fear, uncertainty, and doubt. They're about certainty. They're about being informed Mm -hmm. and then making the right decision for your business.
0: Absolutely. And now I, I, when you're mentioning that, I always remember going back to when, when this was a this was pinnacle change in my career was it was during a penetration test where I was helping a CISO uh, basically do a penetration test, doing assessment, and we found some vulnerabilities. But when we presented it back to the board, because the CISO wanted basically to, to get an increase in budget to be able to install some new tools in the following budget year, and we basically, the plan was to scare the board. Um, to getting the budget yeah and it basically when we went in and we presented it it was a realization we actually ultimately the budget was denied and the ceo and cfo came and sat down and says the budget's been denied you, you did a great presentation you scared us and we now know a lot more about security um, but we don't measure our basically budget decisions based on how you presented um you didn't have a you know a return on investment. You didn't have a tangible value that you were presenting. Yeah. You just basically presented the flaws and the vulnerabilities, but you didn't turn it into, how does it make the employees' lives better? How does it actually make our customers um, you know, with better services? How does it actually you know, reduce the risk of the business? And it turned into, that was the moment, it was a pinnacle moment in my career when I started realizing that my job is no longer, I'm not a cybersecurity professional. I'm actually a person that has skills in that area and knowledge and experience in that area but my actually job role today is about reducing the risk of the business.
1: Yep, and and it's, it's, ab- it's absolutely about how do I enable my business to do more, go faster, yep. more successfully with lower risk? That, that, yep. Those are the questions that, that you get to answer. It's a, about the business. It's never been about security. And that's why and that security was... has been in a silo for so long because <laughs> the mindset within security is that it's all about security, but actually
0: it's not at all it's about not. security. It's all about the business. I always get upset. When we had the Cybersecurity Awareness Month last year, we had a week that was cybersecurity first. And for me, that was so frustrating because that week, I, it's not because it, about cybersecurity first. Cybersecurity is never first. It's always a supporting element to something else. It's a, supporting yeah. to the business services doing or infrastructure or whatever it might be, or the systems or software. But it's super- I think from the
1: outset though, right? Hopefully, rather, <laughs> rather than being added on last, hopefully something that- uh, is at least on the starting line with with all the rest of the project and gets to to have a say and and talk about um, systemic risk within any endeavor.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think for me, I think the big realization was having the discussion with the CFO, and I think more CISOs and more security leaders should be sitting down and listening to the financial team about how they measure things, um, because typically, is that you know the financial team typically are the ones that the they. Basically, the common denominator between SEALs and marketing and development and, you know, management and operations and data typically are the ones that's defining the budgets and the metrics and everything that supports those businesses. I really think that we need to start having security leaders more involved, more embedded, uh, and more listening to how those teams measure their success. Because ultimately, how, how we help them be successful is ultimately how we should be measuring ourselves, um, rather than just measuring, you know, vulnerabilities and attacks stopped. We should be measuring how we have helped the business save money, or help them improve or better the services. Um, so becoming much more listeners to the business rather than actually loudspeakers of enforcement. Which, we've, which long, we have a been long time ago when
1: I when I knew less and, and was certainly more more naive, but probably had a bigger mouth. I I was talking about when when do you know that you're getting it right as a mm-hmm. As someone responsible for security within an organization whatever that job title might be when do you know when you're getting it right Mm -hmm. and i said i think you're really getting it right when you don't think that you need a security team anymore when you don't have Mm -hmm. a team of yours that's directly dedicated to security when actually your team is embedded in everybody else's team they understand the business reasons for why a project is initiated why the timeline is Mm -hmm. what it is what the goals of that project are And that they are able to facilitate reaching Mm -hmm. those goals as a part of that team, or with a dotted line into the person responsible for security. I might have known less and had a bigger mouth, but I think my idea was right. And I still stand by that.
0: Absolutely. And I, I, for me, I'm a big advocate of having teams having cyber ambassadors or cyber mentors, or whatever they want to call it. There's, there's yeah. different names and different terms that's been used in the past for that. I think that's where you really start embedding security in, and that's where you start also getting feedback and hearing about how they're measuring it and, and also how they're communicating it to the uh, to the broader teams as well. Um, I think that's really important. Uh, and so to your point, it's you know absolutely. It's it's all about getting it where it's part of the company culture eventually. And so you're basically just becoming the orchestrator or the conductor of that to make sure that, you know, it's fitting to the business. And to point as well, one of the things I learned from the CFO was also um, about, you know, how they look at risk reduction. You know, whether they choose cyber insurance or whether they choose to offset the risk, to document it, to accept it, to... And they always look at what's the cost of doing something versus the cost of doing nothing. Yeah. If we didn't do anything, what's the... Like the financial impact or the impact of the services that we're providing, whatever it might be, what is that impact and what's the cost of doing something? And they were even, the CFO was, you know, depending on the value of that impact or the cost, they'd be willing to, you know, spend anywhere 10% to even up to 30%, depending, of course, the size of that, you know, if it's 100 million, they'd be willing to spend 10 million to offset that risk. So they would walk away with $90 million, uh, guaranteed, uh, uh, you know, was guaranteed financial profit. And the CSO is always- the
1: right person to make those decisions, right? Because it is, at the end of the day, it's a mathematical calculation. Yep. What's the value of the asset that I'm protecting? What's the likelihood that this particular eventuality will come to pass as regards to a threat to mm-hmm. this asset? Uh, and what will it cost the business if that comes to pass? And that mathematical calculation allows you to say, well, in that case, I mm-hmm. should be spending upwards of this or no more than that yep. to protect the asset in question currently. Exactly. Um, so CFOs are perfectly placed to make those decisions, but security professionals are perfectly placed to give the CFO the data they
0: need to make the right decision. Uh, absolutely. And I think that's the direction we need to be getting. And that, that alignment, So I was saying, it's you know, so important for security leaders to be Really working together with the, the financial team to really get that uh, convergence together. Yeah. What do you think? So, I mean, what do you think the direction of security is going? What, what what's our future look like? Because um, I know you, you mentioned you did the the uh, you know vision twenty thirty. Um, I think was that the one you were a spaceman or something? Like the project twenty
1: thirty was <laughs> no, that was
0: so. Project <laughs> twenty thirty
1: was just a look at. Um, we did a baselining exercise of what does the world look like today, and then um, myself and my co-author Vic Baines, yeah, which uh,
0: fantastic did she did the cybersecurity uh, image problem, which is what one of the things I'm referring to as well. It's, she's uh, fantastic. Amazing. I mean, yeah. it,
1: that's not the first time that we've worked together, and it won't be the last. She's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> um, and and then yeah, we did a lot of uh, like horizon scanning of what technologies are uh, you know on the horizon, mm-hmm. uh, what patent applications are we seeing right now. We ended up in Project 2030 talking about things like the metaverse without calling it the metaverse (laughs) because nobody else had been talking about it until that point. We'd released it, and suddenly Facebook changes its name, and Microsoft starts talking about the metaverse. (laughs) And we're like, wow, that's that's basically what we're talking about in this document. So one of the big implications for me, and I think – so when you're writing a a document like that, and it was a big one. It was Mm 30-something pages long in the end. um, When you're in the middle of writing it, you are consumed by – the bit that you're working on right now and mm-hmm. trying to make sure that you you don't miss any of the threads back to the bits you've already written. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when, all, when it's finished, you read it with another set of eyes that are just looking for uh, typos and spelling mistakes and punctuation yeah. errors and that kind of thing. And then you send it to somebody else, in my case anyway, you send it to somebody else who can make it look pretty Uh, in terms of images and and, and colors and and things. Good designer and and
0: copywriter. (laughs) And it's
1: not until it comes back from that process where you get to read it with fresh eyes as a document. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I tried to sit back and before I started reading, I said, okay, the purpose of me reading this now, um, I I have confidence in in the fact that I've caught all the stuff that I needed to catch. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read it and try and work out what is the one overriding thing that we were writing about in this document. What's the most important Mm -hmm. point of it for me? Um, and what it came, what came to me at the end was that what we were writing about is a problem of truth, trust, and authenticity. And I think Mm -hmm. those are going to be our biggest problems in security going forwards. How do we distinguish fact from fiction, reality from, from fantasy? Um, and how do we maintain an objective record of truth? within an organization and within security. Obviously, there's a much wider societal problem that I couldn't even attempt to solve about an objective record of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you have to look at recent historical events to see you know, how, how necessary that is, but that's not my area. But certainly within cybersecurity, within an organization, if you're ever going to have an effective incident response mechanism, but also threat hunting and incident mm-hmm. detection mechanisms, you need a good baseline and a means Of effectively being able to establish this objective record of truth within your organization. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you never see deviations from that. And that's your early warning
0: system. Absolutely. It's all about context. Um, I think it's all about understanding. Yeah. You know, it's, I think for me, one of the things is if we can bring more sensors and alerts together and collectively make sense of that from context based security, I think that's definitely where we start making better decisions. Because more information, fewer
1: alerts—that would be great, please.
0: Yep, exactly. That's and and we are, you know, there, there is that path going forward. I think a lot of things with automation, integration, APIs, that's yeah. making that possible. Um, it will come down to to humans. You know, I, I, you know, AI will have some play in it. You know, I don't like calling it artificial intelligence. I prefer calling it augmented intelligence, or it's more about supporting the human side of things rather than taking over. Uh, because ultimately, I believe that a human will need to create the algorithms. They will need to go through the yep. data. They will need to make the decisions to determine what more can they automate and add to, to that uh, going forward. Um, but getting to the We point said within we have, 2030, you know,
1: actually, one of, the, one of yeah. the things within 2030 that's very pertinent to that mm-hmm. point is that the role of frontline SOC analysts in the future um, will be more around explaining and validating the decisions taken by a computer. Yep. Because you'll you'll be using machine learning and other forms of AI at the front line to m- do proactive decision making based on incoming data. But as a SOC analyst, you are going to have to look at the outcome of the AI and decide w- why the action was taken and whether it was the right action and what yep. the human learning that needs to then be applied to the machine learning uh, is Th- that comes out of
0: those activities. So Absolutely. you become the conductor you're just making sure it's staying within the lines and that everything yeah, and is Yeah, frontline sock is, is, is continuous for becoming a data
1: scientist, much yeah. more
0: so than now. Absolutely. And which is a good
1: thing. Cuz another yeah. question people are saying, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean that frontline sock uh, those those jobs go away? And no, they develop and they get better. You end up with a, more, with a much more fulfilling role as frontline sock than maybe you have now.
0: Yep, you you get to work in kind of more interesting things more frequently rather than I think I remember when I was in front front line uh, doing security operations and yeah you, you, it just becomes the same every day is the same thing you just it's like or or you know you're working in the same thing and you have the same problems multiple times you're just basically resetting it rebooting it re- false you know. positive
1: false positive false and positive downgrade downgrade upgrade yeah
0: I remember one time uh, somebody came in and said you know why is the why is the screen red it's always red. It's always <laughs> there's another color. <laughs> we, we, we're always interested in the green when it comes through once in a while. What was that? Something worked. <laughs> so Ooh, something happened today. Yeah. Something, something positive suspicious. happened. So, um, and I think that's one, of, that's one of the challenges that, yeah, the false positives. I think you're absolutely right. I think the skill set will evolve as well. I think the data analysts and data scientists, um, and algorithm scientists will become the most, yeah. some of the most important roles in those frontline to make sure that we're able to to continually um, kind of future proofing security. Kind of, you know, we're, we're we're looking at all that intelligent data coming through. We're making sure that we're not just securing of all the things we know about the past, but we're augmenting it to be flexible for the threats so, that you know that we're seeing coming in the future as well. Yeah, um, that's and that's another little thoughts. Ferguson
1: soundbite. Is you, you've yeah. often heard it said that data is the new oil. And to a large extent, I agree yeah. with that assertion, even though it's very hackneyed by now. <laughs> but what I would add on to that is if data is the new oil, then algorithms are the new refineries. Algorithms are what mm. turned that data into a useful product at the end of the day.
0: Yep. And for me, for me it comes down to as well as that uh, then it gets into automation, which for me, the most valuable asset in this world is people's time. Yeah. That's, you know, and that's what, that's what the algorithms are all about, is to, to save our time and allow us to focus on most things that are more valuable in our world um, and, and get balanced, so absolutely. And then we so, end
1: up in the world of Ian, Ian M. Rankin's books where it's the post-scarcity <laughs> world where humans don't need to work anymore, but the machines recognize that working makes us feel good, so they let us do it occasionally.
0: <laughs> absolutely. We're, we're definitely moving to those one-hour one weeks instead of uh, four-day work weeks. Yes. <laughs> it'll be, yes, it'll be, work becomes a hobby for everyone i hope that's ultimately the goal so that would be fantastic. um rick it's been awesome having you on the show and really insightful and uh, definitely for me, me it's always always great conversation always great insights and uh, um everything i mean i just want to let you know i mean everything you've been doing in the industry is you know making the world a safer place um you definitely educate um, the, the videos you do—you um, know—sometimes you are know, st- standing at the top of Mount Denver or so wherever it is. Or, um, but I think it does translate into you know making security understandable um, and making a much broader knowledge the important things. So, um, and everything you're also doing in society as well—you know—taking t- care of people and some of the things you've been doing recent months. I think it's phenomenal. So, uh, keep up the great work and uh, look forward to seeing you. Um, Thank you very much. Hopefully, we'll uh... in the future. Yeah, do that in
1: person at some point. That would be great. Absolutely.
0: Final. Any any words of wisdom that you would like to leave the audience? Uh, final thoughts?
1: Yeah, always use moisturizer. It's really dry in those data centers.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And always bring a set of earmuffs as well, you know, because it can get quite cold. Yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Moisturizer is important. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not even just in the data center. Yes. <laughs> so, um, but it's been it's been fantastic having this show. I will hopefully, hopefully everything's well. Hopefully, you're all excited about the, kind of the journey ahead. Yes. And um, I'm looking it. forward to catching up in person sometime in the future. So, um, for the audience, again, it's been awesome having um, definitely the, the the most famous rock star in the security industry on the show today. And uh, really out there, make sure you tune in every two weeks for your basically thought leadership, education, knowledge transfer to keep you up to date on all things cybersecurity. So stay safe, take care. And again, many thanks for being on the 401 Access Tonight podcast. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cyberry for Business by going to www.cybrae.it slash business. This podcast is also brought to you by Delinea. Lycotic and Centrify are now Delinea, the leader in privileged access management. To learn more, visit Delinea.com.